Welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair, and me, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker. takes place online with safe physical distancing. Our featured guest today is Herb Culling. Herb Culling has an abiding interest in and respect for local history. His first two books deal with the auto industry in Windsor. He cut his teeth in 1993 on pioneering the auto age about Windsor as an automotive capital of Canada and went on to write 99 Days, The Ford Strike in Windsor, 1945 in 1995, and Turning Points, The Detroit Riot of 1967, A Canadian Perspective. His most recent book is Radio Transcriptions, Historical Vignettes of Essex County, which was edited for the Essex County Historical Society. He is a retired CBC Radio Windsor broadcaster. Welcome, Herb. Hi there. So your first two books cover the auto history of Windsor. What drew you to that subject matter? Well, that's kind of an interesting story. Um, I became friends with a fellow by the name of Carl Morgan, who was an editor of the Windsor Star at the time. We met at the press club and we had kind of a common interest. We liked antiques, glass and china and things like that. And so he asked me one day to go over to the States to a flea market. And uh, on the way, in the course of the conversation, he said, uh, what do you know about the, or first of all, he said, uh, have you ever written a book or, or have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, no, actually, uh, I've thought of it, but I've, I've never had a subject or anything. So he said, well, what do you know about the uh, auto industry? And I said, absolutely nothing. He said, do you want to write a book about it? And I said, sure, why not? And uh, so we started into it. I started researching it and writing it. And uh, he was editing it, and we'd edit back and forth, and uh, we parlayed it into a, a quite a nice little book. And that was the first, that was the start, I guess. And um, helping with the editing was the thing that got me rolling. And um, that, it was very intense because um, even while we were editing, it came down to the day we were to publish. And uh, we'd been going back and forth uh, on email, sending uh, copies of uh, edited drafts. And uh, at about two o'clock in the morning, uh, Carl said, uh, Herb, enough is enough. We've got to put this thing to bed. Uh, we've got to get uh, we've got to get on with it. And uh, that's as much as we can do. And so we stopped editing it and he's shipped it off and uh, and we published it. Great. And Carl Morgan was such a powerhouse editor of the Windsor Star. And uh, um, I could see him sort of putting that hat on again. That was yeah. awesome. Uh, so Windsor's history as an automotive powerhouse is a source of fascination and civic pride for many Windsorites and people of this region in Detroit as well. So how have people from the region reacted to your work? Well, it, it's uh, just uh, a thing that uh, they um, thought so well of it, uh, it because it, there, there's a huge sense of pride in Windsor that they helped put Canada on wheels. And in many respects, Windsor is the city that basically developed the auto industry in Canada because of the beginnings of Morton McGregor, who was uh, with Ford, uh, developed Ford of Canada way back in 1904. And it all started from there and mushroomed and became quite a uh, history of 
Windsor generally. But the, the neat thing about the first book was that it was about the auto industry per se and looking at old companies that had gone by the board. And at one point in Windsor, there were, oh, I think about 24 different country, companies um, that established in Windsor to uh, develop and sell their automobiles, which is pretty remarkable when you think about it. And um, at one time or another, they lasted for maybe, oh, months to years um, to, of course, the big three that uh, had the most long-standing tradition in Windsor. And uh, the neat thing about the first book, though, is that a lot of the auto buffs who have uh, cars and go to the auto shows and things like that, they love the book because it put the history of their automobiles um, together, gave them some, I guess, uh, a look at uh, how they all developed in the first place and uh, and so they were well pleased with that and a, a lot of fellows uh, they commented on how um, accurate the book was which I appreciated a great deal and uh, that was the the my claim I guess to fame that uh, there was a degree of accuracy there that uh, uh, people appreciated. Just as a quick follow-up 24 companies. What are some of the more unusual ones that you recall? Well, companies like Gottfredson Trucks, for example, and uh, yeah, they, you know, a lot of people have never even heard of them, let alone, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, got a sense of their history. But uh, companies uh, that established here, um, thinking that they could develop into a, a market, and of course, Gottfredson developed the truck industry, um, but weren't able to sort of keep going and didn't last very long as it turned out, which was rather unfortunate. Um, but, uh, oh, the, the companies that, uh, I guess we were kind of a branch plant of the United States to the extent that um, there was tariff, there were tariff um, uh, restrictions that you couldn't import a, a, a complete car to Canada, uh, but you could import the parts for the car uh, duty free and, and the car to import a car would be uh, tremendously expensive. And the idea was to develop the industry in Canada. And so sure enough, uh, Morton McGregor, who was the uh, fellow who pioneered Ford of Canada in 1904, he established, um, went over to talk to a maverick um, in, the for, in the car industry, a guy named Ford, who'd already gone belly up a couple of times and um, said, well, um, I'll build your cars in Canada and uh, develop the Canadian market for you. And what Ford realized was that Canada was a dominion and part of the British uh, Commonwealth. And so not only would he gain access to Canada, which was a very small market at the time, but he would gain access to the British Empire and become a multinational um, company, as it were. And uh, so he took advantage of that and uh, basically developed his car here. And that was the impetus for establishing all sorts of, uh, oh, um, supply companies and uh, tool and die and uh, things like that. And so it just mushroomed from there. And, uh, and, but it was pretty risky. I mean, Ford had already gone belly up twice and um, there, he wasn't a, a sort of tried and true product, but of course, within, 10 years he developed the assembly line and that's indeed what uh, sort of kept the auto industry humming. So all of the books you've published have dealt with some aspect of local or Canadian history. How that's do you decide which stories are worth telling? How do you choose them? Oh that's a uh, it's kind of the almost by accident in a way because it started with the auto industry and then um, a chapter in uh, what 
uh, was Carl's in my book, um, Pioneering the Auto Age. A chapter in that was about the Ford strike in uh, 1945, the 99-day strike. And Carl had said that he might be interested in doing that, but he'd gone on to other projects by the time I got around to uh, doing it. And so he kind of bailed out on it. And so I had to find another publisher. And interestingly enough, I found NC Press, which stands for Norman Caroline um, in Toronto. And when I was a student in university, I was reading a lot of their stuff um, that they'd published, books about uh, political histories and things like that. And so I submitted the manuscript to them. And um, uh, Caroline's husband, Norm, um, and that's where NC Press comes from, um, Norm, knew a lot of the people that I was writing about, who I could not know, of course, because it was 1945 and a lot of them were gone by the time uh, I started to write the book. And so um, he determined that I was so precise on the, the way I developed their characters and their physical appearance and what have you, not having known them, that I must be right on all the other stuff too. And uh, so they published it, which was uh, kind of great. And that became a textbook actually, um, at three different universities, one of which was the University of Windsor. And uh, so uh, I do the rounds as a sort of guest lecturer, which was a lot of fun. So what was the research process like for your most recent book, Turning Points, The Detroit Riot? Well, actually, that, that's, there's a few incarnations uh, beyond that. Um, I've had, uh, I think, about six books that I've published. Uh, but um, the, the process is pretty much the same. It's a lot of grunt work. Um, if you're familiar with uh, Ernest Hemingway and his writing, um, some journalist asked him what he thought about writing. And uh, Hemingway just looked at him and said, it's good to have written, <laughs> taking it into the past tense. It's good to have done it, but um, doing it is really quite a slog. And when you're dealing with history, you obviously have to go back into early newspapers. And the good thing about going back into Canadian history was that the newspapers were a matter of record which is no longer. And so they talked about everything, all sorts of gossip and uh, sort of neat stories and, and things like that, and covered the, wa the, the waterfront. And, and I think that's sort of gone by the, the, the way, uh, the, sort of the um, times have changed since then. But uh, you'd start with um, anecdotes from newspapers, then you'd look at magazine articles and uh, sort of the any local um, histories and things like that that you could find. Uh, so you'd go through the library and you look at book after book after book. But then you get down to the real work, which is actually talking to the people or the sons and daughters or grandchildren of the people who developed the industry. And, uh, and you find all, all sorts of marvelous things. There's one little anecdote about... Um, the head of the Ford Motor Company in the, in the war, actually, in 1940s, um, he was um, described as always wearing white gloves in the factory. And, um, you know, the union guys say, oh, yeah, he'd do the white glove test, you know, sort of run his finger um, on to see if there was any dust. I'm thinking in the 40s, obviously, there was dust in the auto plants. They were pretty dirty places um, generally. So why on earth would he wear white gloves to do white glove testing, you know, to look for dust? And I was at loggerheads. I couldn't find it out. I couldn't find it out. And I got down to the last day in the library and I was just kind of cruising the shelves and looking for references to this guy. And finally, I found one in a, a book of American automotive history. And um, it said that he had a eczema on his hands 
and um, was allergic to the grit and the, um, oh, the uh, grease, I guess. And it uh, caused all sorts of uh, problems, skin condition problems. And so that's why he wore white gloves in the plant. So it had nothing to do with dust. It had nothing to do with cleanliness. It was just because of his personal skin condition. So I, I added that, and that was one of the points that uh, sold the book to the fellow Norm, who eventually published it with Norm and Carolyn, uh, Turning Points. And um, they decided, um, when you think about it, uh, Carolyn was 64 years old at the time, and Norm was 83. He was in failing health. And so Caroline said, I'm going to fold the business. I know I promised to uh, publish your next book, but I'm not going to be able to do that. And so as a consequence, she gave me all of her outstanding um, copies of um, the, uh, um, of the uh, 99 Days book, the uh, Ford Strike book. And she gave me the final copies of that and said, well, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to do what I wanted to and what I told you I would do. Um, so now, interestingly enough, she, she at the age of 64 went back to get her PhD as well as take care of an ailing husband. And uh, yeah. so more power to her. But uh, I was despondent. I, I didn't know what to do. I had a, a book uh, that was virtually uh, finished. And so I relegated to the bottom drawer. And I went to Amherstburg, where one of my favorite uh, bookstores was, a little place called Tempest Books. And uh, the young lady there <laughs> basically uh, got me um, uh, hooked up with uh, Natural Heritage when I told her and lamented the story that this thing's in the bottom drawer. and. Uh, uh, she said, um, well, um, basically, uh, uh, try them out. Uh, they usually pick up publisher or, or books that were promised to another publisher, but uh, wasn't going to be published. And sure enough, I, I tried them out and they, they published the next book, which was Turning Points. And, uh, and then well and they, they published a lot of local regional histories as well. So yeah, yeah. And yeah, I remember them talking to me at uh, Canadian Booksellers Association trade show, and they were so thrilled to have your book. And now they're, uh, they've been bought up by Dundurn Press, which is another great Canadian independent oh. publisher. So yeah, yeah, there yeah. we go. Um, so in the process of writing any of your other books, was, have there been um, uh, another fact or story that, that you encountered that really took you by surprise, that just went, wow, this is... Yeah, I guess the whole idea of Windsor history um, kind of took me by surprise. I, I moved down to Windsor in 1979. And I was struck at the time that all of the history that was basically talked about at that time was the War of 1812. And most of the historians concentrated on that era. And I got looking into Windsor history and, and the Detroit riots a case in point because um, I had a personal involvement with it to some extent in that we had cousins, distant cousins living in Detroit at the time. And so my parents had called them and said, well, you know, do you want to come to Canada as a, a refuge? And we were living up in Midland, uh, Ontario at the time. And it struck me that nobody talked about all this kind of stuff. And yet there was a wealth of material. And, and I'm pleased to say that um, since that time, um, I started writing about it, um, these other areas of interest that had never been covered. And since that time, a lot of other writers have done the same and picked up and, uh, and, and 
realized what a wealth of material there is beyond just the War of 1812. So it uh, it was kind of quite remarkable. Um, some of the other references were um, there was a guy named Harrison who worked with for the Windsor Star, and he was the old style reporter, hard drinking, um, out all night, and um, he would actually wrap himself in the rug of the editor's. Um, uh, office um, when he'd been on a binge um, but he, his copy was always delivered and so they had an edict that they would never fire him um, and of course you look at uh, the, the press and, and the way it's developed and that of course would never happen now but it's a colorful character who basically got the stories because he was out talking to the people that he needed to talk to and many of them were in bars at the time which was rather convenient for a hard drinking reporter. Windsor has a very supportive and writing and listening community. How have you tapped into that community to support your writing? I'm not really sure. It, it, uh, um, I, I guess I've got a following now, which is kind of nice. Uh, people sort of look for my new books and uh, are interested in what I've, I've written. And uh, so that's kind of uh, intriguing to me that uh, people actually enjoy. And, and uh, it's it's a great thrill when somebody comes up and said, Oh, I read your book uh, the other day and uh, I couldn't put it down. And uh, in fact, there was a recent case where uh, somebody in Windsor um, down by um, the, uh, the golf course, um, Beach Grove, um, he basically had a friend deliver a book to him, I guess, because of the pandemic. And um, he said, I'd like you to sign, to sign it when uh, this is kind of all over. And uh, it was kind of nice because he basically had lived here and knew some of the people that I was writing about and uh, loved to hear the story. And uh, in that case, it, it was about one of my most recent books. It's about Ford City, um, the area sort of including Droulard Road, going all, all the way over to um, uh, Pilette. And um, basically, the development of Ford City. And uh, he had been a, a child, born and raised in the area, and uh, was quite proud of that heritage and found that uh, my book had, I guess, recreated that style of life that he grew up in. Um, and uh, it was very an ethnic neighborhood, and uh, the kids all played sandlot baseball and ran around on their bicycles uh, till well after dark, and then went home, and uh, and then the next day would do it all again and, and play, and uh, and it was very communal, and people would sit on their front porches and uh, chat and talk back and forth with their neighbors about sort of the local uh, what was the gossip and what was happening in their community and things like that. So it was very close knit and um, many people um, have a disparaging feeling about the Droulard Road area in particular um, and it's had a lot of difficulties over the years and I talked about those and tried to put them into a perspective. So Herb do you have another writing project in the works? Oh, um, I keep promising myself that enough is enough and uh, that I'm not going to pursue any more. And it seems that uh, I, I find another project to do. Um, the one I'm working on now, is, it, well, actually, I should mention this um, publication. This is um, an edited version of uh, material that um, a friend of mine gave me. Uh, they were radio transcripts from the 40s and 50s. And um, she 
saw me at a flea market and said, well, you were sitting there and looked bored. So I, I, she gave me this volume of material and it was so interesting and it hadn't really been published. It had been radio transcripts on uh, CKLW, but it hadn't gone any further from there. And um, I thought it was a wealth of material. A lot of it I didn't know. And so I approached uh, Essex County Historical Society who put it out originally and uh, said, would, um, would you be interested in uh, letting me do this and, and uh, putting it together as a book? We can both sell it and make a, a little bit of money on it. And, uh, you know, sort of they, they could use the proceeds to pay for some of their projects. And of course I'd use the uh, proceeds to buy shoes and uh, keep me in the style to which I've become accustomed. Um, and they said, sure, yeah, why not? And so we published it, uh, it's kind of self-published. Um, but it was my latest project. And then I decided not to go on from there. And um, recently, my uncle, who's 93 years old now, um, has gone into a transition home, going into a nursing home. And um, I've been going through all his books and papers and stuff. And he's a gay individual. And uh, so wanted to talk about his gay life um, at a time when, you know, people were afraid of coming out of the closet and sort of, you know, divulging the fact that they were gay and uh, and some people who had uh, I guess married and uh, were uh, maintaining a, a heterosexual lifestyle for the show of it um, at a time when uh, they were sort of gay and so um, I've got all this material he, he basically recorded a lot of it on tape and um, so I'm compiling that and I'm not sure if it'll ever be published per se um, but in the meantime I thought well I'll, I'll publish it if not for general consumption um, for my nieces and certainly my sisters um, who basically are in the same uh, I guess we always knew he was gay but uh, he didn't come out of the closet until the 70s um, and uh, and then uh, uh, sort of lived out his life and uh, just wanted to uh, talk about explain about his uh, his history so it's a kind of a personal project but a project nonetheless and it keeps me kind of off the streets and busy can i just ask about the radio transcripts Where yeah. I know guys like uh, nf morrison wonderful stories and, and some of which i've never heard before and uh, it was uh, really kind of a great uh, great thing to uh, be involved with and uh, and basically condensing them. Um, they had reams and reams of material and I was restricted to 200 pages. And uh, so I think it runs about 199. And so there were a lot of them that uh, weren't particularly good. Um, and yet others were good in parts. So I'd incorporate them and put them in uh, sort of one theme in one, uh, one area and kind of do a compilation. And so it was a lot of fun to, uh, to actually work on. So would you like to set up a reading for us? Oh, right yeah, yeah, I could. And I'll actually, I'll do it from the historical vignette. So this isn't my material, but it's my edited material. And uh, this one was one of the stories you asked me earlier that uh, I particularly like. Um, this one is, is entitled The Colorful Colonel in the new edition. Um, it's a story by Martin J. Haveron. And it was uh, first uh, uh, transcribed and used on radio on May 2nd, 1953. On Monday morning, March 13th, 1893, Colonel Arthur Rankin died at Hotel Dew Hospital in Windsor. He was 77 and his body was interred at the Catholic Cemetery in Sandwich. To many, he was a paradox. He could be firm, determined and shrewd, but also irascible, fiery, bombastic and uncompromising. 
Of Irish parentage, he was born in Montreal in 1816. At 15, he left school to become a cabin boy on a packet ship that ran from New York to Liverpool. After several years, he tired of the sea and joined his brother Charles in Owen Sound, where he became a land surveyor. He also bought a farm to supplement his income. It didn't last. By the time he was 20, he enlisted in the infantry, stationed at Sandwich, where he nearly killed a Detroit lawyer, Henry Richardson, in a duel on Belle Isle. And since that time, he faced several opponents in the field of honor. During the Patriot Rebellion of 1837-38, Rankin served under Colonel John Prince, was promoted to lieutenant, and saw action at the Battle of Windsor, where he captured the enemy flag. For his bravery, he received a commendation from the English House of Lords. In 1840, he married the eldest daughter of Alexander McKee of Sandwich and had two sons. By 1843, he developed a pioneer Wild West show with a band of local Ojibwe. He went on tour to England, where he performed twice for Queen Victoria, earning the equivalent of $16,000 in the process. After returning from England, he partnered with John Waddell, the sheriff of Essex and Kent counties. They planned to run a steamship line from Chatham to Montreal. Several vessels were built, including the George Moffat, but the venture proved a failure when one ship was wrecked and the other disabled. Undaunted, Rankin turned to mining. Remembering his training as a surveyor, he became a guide at the copper deposits of Lake Superior. With his brother-in-law, Alexander McKee, he organized a small party of voyageurs for a rapid exploration of the North Shore by birch bark canoe. He found several promising deposits, two of which netted about $70,000. The money allowed him to speculate in Windsor real estate in anticipation of the Great Western Railway coming to town. In 1851, Rankin entered politics as the conservative candidate for Kent County, but was defeated. Three years later, he ran for a seat in the legislature in Essex County against Albert, the son of Colonel John Prince, and was elected. In a subsequent campaign, he was driving up Sandwich Street where he was pelted with rotten eggs by an angry mob. He ordered his driver to stop, took two revolvers out of his pockets, and defied the mob to throw another egg. The men dispersed. Rankin was never successful as a politician. He was too impulsive, hot-tempered, and insubordinate. At one point, he even challenged John A. Macdonald, the conservative leader and eventual prime minister, to a duel. His British citizenship was placed in jeopardy when he tried to recruit a Lancer regiment in Michigan during the American Civil War in contravention of Britain's declaration of neutrality. Faced with losing his citizenship, Rankin withdrew from the scheme and it fell apart. And I thought, I'd never heard that story actually. And I thought, wow, that's a pretty incredible sort of a, a situation. Um, and I look at the political situation of today and uh, <laughs> wonder if we, we need new guys like uh, Rankin on the hustings. <laughs> he was quite a colorful character. Well, thank you very, very much. Well, thank you for having me. This was fun. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.